But let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. This morning, I'm going to be talking to you about prayer for worried Christians. Prayer for worried Christians. Preachers like to assume, or sometimes advertise, that every message applies to everyone in the room. And that's not always the case. There are always limitations on sometimes the application. But this morning, my limitation would be this, that this sermon, if I may give this caveat, this sermon is only going to be helpful for you if you have ever worried about anything. And if you haven't ever worried about anything, you're not going to get much out of this text. But if, like the rest of us, you've ever experienced this feeling, where you look into the future and something in the future frightens you, then this message is for you. All of us know how to worry. We're professionals at worrying. But not all Christians know how to talk to God about their worry. We know how to worry, but we don't know what prayer should look like when we worry. Thankfully, Psalm 46 is in our Bibles, and I believe it's been kept for us just for this very purpose. One of the genres of the Psalms is the Psalms of trust. And Psalm 46 is one of those psalms of trust. So let's look at Psalm 46. We're going to look at the text in its entirety, all 11 verses, and then we're going to go uh, through and see what God has for his people today. I hope you're ready to hear God's word this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, Will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof? There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. This is God's word. Let's pray. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior. And make the book live to me. This is our prayer. For Jesus' sake, hear us. Amen. Psalm 46 was written for especially unsettling times. We read it and we feel a sense of foreboding. There is imminent danger. It's like a short story or a movie that starts off and your blood pressure goes up. You've realized this is a drama and not a comedy. Something bad is on the verge of happening. That's the ethos of Psalm 46. There, is, there are words like trouble and rage, catastrophic imagery like the earth being dissolved. The people of God, the Israelites, look into the future and they don't like what they see. They see total devastation staring them in the face. And these words come from the psalmist in a time like this. Not only from the psalmist, but from the people of God who would rehearse them from their hymn book over and over and over again. God is our refuge. God is our refuge. We don't know which event led to this psalm being written. We can't be sure exactly how it originated, but we know that it was used many times. Anytime Jerusalem was under attack, the people in the city could go to this psalm and know how to talk to God when their city was under attack. Anytime soldiers were on the field getting ready to fight God's enemies, they could go to this psalm and rehearse it from memory to know how to talk to God when they worried about the battle they were about to engage. When early Christians were persecuted by the Jews and the Romans, when they were hiding out in caves, having church underground, hoping not to be found, hearing about their friends and family who were fed to animals in the Colosseum, they would often go to this psalm and know how to talk to God. Luther found consolation in this psalm and it inspired not his only hymn, but his most well-known hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So this is a psalm for worried people. Now sometimes uh, when modern people look at the Bible and they see the ancients there, they, especially people of the biblical era, they assume that these people were naive and simplistic and too fearful. And you still meet people like that today. They believe they've outgrown the Bible and that Christianity is just for people who are afraid of what happens when you die. Which I like to ask them, are you not afraid of what happens after you die? Now, yes, it's true. The ancients were afraid of a lot of things. But do you really think the human race has outgrown fear? Fear. 
Have you ever spent at least 20 and a half seconds on CNN or Fox? Now, the people who watch CNN and Fox are very different from each other, but the one thing they have in common is they're afraid of the future. And if they weren't, then those stations couldn't sell ad time. That's what keeps people hooked. Can anyone argue with a straight face that in the modern world we've evolved past worry? Of course not. Look around you. People are constantly obsessed with worrying about the future. This is why the movies that often make one or two billion dollars at the box office are not just stories about people's lives. They're stories about the world ending and it barely being saved. People want to see those kinds of stories. They resonate with them. Why? Because they're afraid about the world ending. That's why. That's why. People are afraid about elections, about the rise of artificial intelligence, school shootings. They're worried about the future. China, Russia, nuclear warfare. I think I was six or seven years old when my mom let me watch the day after. I was terrifying. I didn't sleep for days. No, people are still afraid of the future. If you are human, you worry. You worry. So the question then is, how do we talk to God when we worry? And this psalm gives us really three guideposts for praying when we're worried. Now here's the, three, or here's the first of the three guideposts. The psalm is going to teach us, number one, when you're worried and you need to pray, which by the way, when you're worried, you do need to pray, Number one, locate your confidence. Locate your confidence. We could also say it like this. Remember where your ultimate trust really lies. Locate your confidence. We see this in verses one through three. There's some dramatic imagery in verses two through three. He says, we won't fear though, and then the though, it's a pretty scary though, isn't it? Look down at your Bibles. There's an earthquake so bad that mountains go into the sea. Now, this didn't happen uh, literally. This is um, imagery. But, But mountains represent order. Everything that is established. Everything that appears to be immovable. If you've ever... Uh, flown into Seattle, right? As you get close to the airport, you go by Mount Rainier. And when I read this psalm, I just think of how crazy it would be if I'm on a plane looking at Mount Rainier, that it just dissolves and goes into the water. I mean, it just looks so permanent, so established. But our lives can feel like that sometimes. That everything we trusted on, everything we assumed would stay permanent can go away. If you've ever been through a surprising divorce, you know what it's like for there to be order and rhythm and normalcy and for one day the mountain to go into the water and it's gone. Do you get the picture here? For the psalmist, whatever is going on, for the people of God, whatever is is going on, this image is of the whole world falling apart. Everything they relied on, everything they assumed would be be there the next day, everything about which they said, this will never go away, it appears that it's going to go away. 
feels like the world is collapsing in on them. But did you see how the song began? It didn't begin with this chaos. It didn't begin with mountains collapsing into the water. No, it didn't begin that way. Even in this trouble, even in this chaos, even in this fear of what's going to happen in the future, here are the opening words. God is our refuge. Our refuge. Now, it's not that Israel didn't have any physical defenses. They had walls, they had spears and weapons and shields, and they had strategies, but their defenses ultimately were their God who made promises to them. That's the last line of defense. That's the thing that's actually never going to go away. God is still their refuge. Psalm 46 reminds us as God's people where our confidence should be. And the reason we need Psalm 46 over and over and over again is because we can forget where our confidence is supposed to be. In fact, this first point could have been relocate your confidence. Because we can one day know that God is our ultimate protection and that all of a sudden something happens. There's the mountain. There it goes. It's gone. Something happens. And our confidence can get misplaced in other things. Other things less powerful than God. Other things less good than God. Other things less reliable than God is. So we have to locate our confidence and we have to do it over and over again. Sometimes God's people can have a substitute refuge, a substitute fortress. Or if we were to play off Luther, some of this, for some of us, the song of our life would be, a mighty fortress is my retirement. Mighty fortress is my family. We can have a substitute Refuge. Have you ever thought about it like this? Because Israel struggled with this. Have you ever thought about idolatry as mishandled worries? Idolatry as mishandled worries? You see, the the Israelites never went into idolatry. They never had a substitute God or a substitute refuge. They never began trusting in other things because they were bored. They were worried about stuff. And idols promise us identity and security. They tell us who we are and that everything's going to be okay. That's what idols do. Now, those are false promises. They're empty promises. They make, uh, idols make a lot of checks that we can't cash. But they still make them, don't they? Idols play off our mishandled worries. So the Israelites would worship different false deities of their neighbors because they were afraid, afraid of a lack of fertility. You had idols that took care of that. Afraid of drought. There were idols that took care of that as well. Elijah has an interesting contest with one of those. Afraid of not getting their crops in. That's a scary thing. They had idols for that. So the pagan idolatry of Israel's neighbors offered them all these substitute fortresses, these substitute protections. Look to us and everything will be okay. And we can do the same thing. God's people even today, Christians today, lapse into idolatry when we mishandle our worries. 
We're afraid about something and then we worship something to ease our fear. Some of us are afraid of being alone and so you're worshiping a relationship. Your greatest fear is being in this world without anybody else. So you've put all your stock into a relationship. It's what controls you. It's what you live for. It's an idol. It's making a promise to you. That relationship is telling you that if you worship me and serve me above all else, you'll never be lonely. But that's not true. Money does the same thing. We are afraid of being in want. And so money, though money is a good thing, just like relationships are a good thing, money as an idol promises you security, but it can't deliver. So where is your confidence? Where is your confidence, Christian? No other defense can do what God can do. No other defense can save us from what God can save us from. Nothing else will give you identity, tell you who you are, and security, protect you from what you don't need to experience, like God can. Christian, God tells you who you are. God protects you from what he doesn't want in your life. Our confidence needs to be in him, and this psalm helps us do that. It it helps us come back to center and remember, my trust needs to be in the Lord. My faith needs to be in the Lord. He's going to take care of me. He's going to keep his promises to me. He's not going to fail. Prayer for worried Christians starts with this reorienting of our trust, putting the only person who can really stand under its weight. So when we're worried, we pray by relocating our confidence. Then number two, when we're worried, pray by acknowledging his presence. Acknowledging his presence. We see this in verses four through seven. There's sort of a shift in the scenery in verse four. Look down at your Bibles at verse 4. He's not talking about Jerusalem. He's not talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about some sort of heavenly city. He's talking about life from God's perspective. The psalmist, listen, is fully aware of what's going on. He's fully aware as he looks into the future, as God's people look at what's coming, it looks like the mountains are going into the sea. It looks like the world is going to collapse. He doesn't ignore that. He doesn't ignore that. By the way, being a Christian isn't uh, being a Christian doesn't mean we come to church to experience positive vibes. We don't tell you to ignore your suffering. We don't tell you to pretend like it doesn't exist. No, Christianity is true enough; it can account for your suffering. That's all part of the picture. So much of the New Testament is about our suffering. It's on every page. So, in the opening verses, the psalmist is very honest about how life feels, about how worried God's people are. But that's not the whole picture. Being a Christian means you see life, as it were, through bifocals. You see what worries you. You see what bothers you. You see the chaos and the destruction, the unreliability of things in this world, the lack of permanence of things in this world. You see what can change, what can be taken away, what you're liable to lose, but you see something else at the same time. God has his own city. God has his own kingdom. God has his own rule. There is this other place. Not with waters that are stormy and troubled, but a gentle river. A city full of gladness. Full of gladness, not of crashing mountains, but a city of tabernacles. To know God's 
presence. To acknowledge God's presence means this. For God to be present with his people means that he is on our side and he's actively accomplishing his purposes for us. Sometimes when we talk about the presence of God, we only talk about a feeling. And the presence of God can be felt. In fact, I think if you want to feel the presence of God and you're a Christian, the best way to do that is to constantly remind yourself of God's promises. But the presence of God is not simply felt as much as it is known. Jesus did not tell his disciples, you will always feel my presence until the end of the age. He tells them, I will be with you always. Do you think Peter always felt like God was with him? Do you think the early Christians in the first two centuries of the church felt, felt like God was always with them? Probably not. But they could know he was always with them. See, God's presence is first something that we know and only secondly something that we feel. And even when we can't feel it, we can still know it. What can we know, David? That God is on our side and he's accomplishing his purposes for us. We have his presence. He is with us. In other words, he's not against us. He's not left us alone. He's not abandoned us. He's with us. If I'm at work, my children don't feel my presence. But that doesn't mean I've abandoned them. They just don't feel me in the room right now. In fact, I'm actively working for them to provide for their needs. That's why I go to work. But I'm still with them, right? Whether or not you can feel God today, Christian, does not determine whether or not you have his presence. If you are in Christ, you have God's presence. He is with you. He's keeping his promises. Verse 6 shows us that while the tumult of enemies may be deafening, the voice of God will silence all of them. God melts those who oppose him. He shuts it down with his voice. And I love this. Did you notice in verse 7 that God is here, not just called the God of Israel, but notice, look, at, look down at your Bibles at verse 7. This is amazing. This is amazing. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Jacob. What an interesting thing to bring up out of all the people the psalmist could have mentioned. Not the God of Moses. Not the God of Samuel. Not the God of Noah. The God of Jacob. Can you think of anyone's life in the Old Testament that seemed more chaotic than Jacob's? Pretty chaotic life, right? Pretty crazy life. God made a bunch of promises to Jacob at the front end. And then some really bizarre things happen. So, so many bizarre, it, like if Jacob's life was a, like a show uh, on NBC at season one, you'd think there's no way all this cool stuff is going to happen. There's no way that he, can be, that, that he can carry on the promises of his father. It would take like 11 seasons for them to tie up all these loose ends, but God knows how to tie up loose ends. But here's the point. I think here's why the psalmist calls God the God of Jacob. God makes these amazing promises to Jacob, and some things happen to Jacob, and Jacob does some things that make God's promises look impossible to fulfill. But what does he do? Unexpectedly, God keeps his promises despite the chaos, despite 
all the change. Despite the things that happened, despite the destruction, despite the many times in Jacob's life where he looked at the future and he thought he was going to die and he thought he was going to lose everything and it looked like the mountain was going to go in the ocean, God kept his promises. Listen, the God of Jacob is your God if you know Christ. If God can keep his promises even to Jacob, don't you think he can keep his promises to your chaotic life despite what happens? God will not abandon his people. God will not abandon his promises. So when we pray, we acknowledge God's presence. We remind ourselves, God, you're with me. Sometimes maybe like Jairus, we say, God, I believe that you're present with me, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. You've not given up on me, God. You've not given up on your promises that you've made. You're with me. So we locate our confidence. God, I'm trusting in you. Help me to trust in you. Despite what's happening, God, despite all the chaos, all the destruction, I'm trusting you. Help me to keep trusting in you. Then we acknowledge his presence. God, you're with me. Remind me that you're with me. Help me to believe that you are with me. And then number three, uh, verses eight through 11. When we worry, we pray by remembering the future. Remembering the future. I love verses 8 through 11. There's so much encouragement here. He turns our attention to the works of the Lord when so often our attention is on the works of perhaps Satan or the kingdom of darkness or God's enemies. He, the psalmist draws us back in. Don't just pay attention to what the heathen are doing. He says to the people, to the congregation of Israel, come, behold the works of the Lord. In other words, stop looking at the Philistines. Stop looking at the Babylonians. Remember, behold, gaze on this, what God does and who he is and what he's going to do. Christians often look at the future as if they didn't believe in Christianity. As if they don't know the end of their own story. We do this all of the time. So we need to hear, to hear the psalmist telling us this. Hey, behold the works of the Lord. Remember what God is going to do to wrap this story up. Every, listen, every human conflict, everything that makes you worry, everything that makes you afraid exists for one reason, and that is sin. Sin in this world is why there are things that make us worry. It all goes back to that. And when God ends this rebellion, as he does, look at your Bibles in verse number 9, he's going to end the rebellion. He's going to end all the forces of chaos and destruction that are tearing this world apart. God's going to put a stop to it. And when he does, all of the causes of our worry will also go away. Did you know that we won't worry in the new earth because there'll be nothing to worry about? That's good news for Christians who are constantly battling worry. There'll be nothing to worry about. There'll be nothing. We can look down in the future, which will be an eternal future. I don't know exactly how that works, but it's going to be forever. And there is not a single thing that will make you afraid or anxious, no matter what your temperament is in this life. One day, God is going to end all of that. 
And God's people remind themselves at the end of the story so they can make sense at this part of the story. If you ever watched a movie that has a happy ending, it's not as upsetting the second time through. Right? You know the main character is going to be okay. Well, hey, God's people, we know the end of our story. He's going to put down everything that can make you worry. He is going to put an end to it. Remember the end of the story. Remember. And this really is what verse 10 is all about. Now, I know, look, at, look down your Bibles at verse 10. I, I, I want you to see this. Verse 10 is sort of one of those pillowcase verses where we imagine God sweetly whispering to his people, it's going to be okay. But that's not what verse 10 means. God is not whispering verse 10 to Israel. He is shouting it to the nations. He's getting on to them. He's judging them. We see this often in the Old Testament. Habakkuk talks about the day of the Lord and he says, let all the earth keep silence. It's the day of the Lord. Zephaniah, hold your peace for the day of the Lord is at hand. Zechariah, be silent all flesh before the Lord. God is going to, if I could say it, shut up everyone who opposes him. That's why he says, be still. Stop. Stop the chaos. Stop the movement. Stop destroying my world. I'm done. I've had mercy. Now it's time to judge my enemies and know that I am God. He's not telling this to us. He's telling it to whatever makes you worry. Whatever makes this world seem chaotic and unpredictable and unreliable, one day God will tell all of the chaos in this world of the rebellion, all the destruction, all the lies, he'll say, stop. I am God. Are you longing for that day, Christian? Are you longing for that day? That's what we're looking forward to. And the psalm ends in verse 11 like it begins, with God as our refuge. Two questions and then a prayer. Question number one, is God your refuge? All of us have fears and worries in life. How do you handle those? Have you tried to handle that with something outside of a relationship with God? Perhaps trusting in yourself. But there is a limit to what you can do, isn't there? That can sort of make us spiral when we run into our limits and see them. There's a limit to what we can do. Your greatest fears are not something that can be conquered by you or by self-transformation or by a streak of good luck. The things that you're most afraid of, or perhaps we should say this, the things you ought to be most afraid of, which is your sin against God, God himself has acted to protect you from that. He has acted to redeem you, as we talked about in the Easter sermon last week, from what threatens you the most. Question number two, if you are a Christian, if God is your refuge, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, I want to just ask you this, and I want you to think to yourself and be honest. Be honest. Sunday is a great place for some reason for us to all be dishonest. But for just a moment, let's be honest about who you really are and how you really live your life with God. When was the last time you prayed about your worries? 
Now, we worry all the time. I didn't ask you when the last time was you worried or that you even talked about your worries to other people. When was the last time you and God had a conversation about what makes you worry? When was it? Maybe we approach prayer like we approach church. As a place to hide from God instead of a place to be honest with God. In fact, I think many Christians approach their whole spiritual lives like this. Prayer itself can be a place to hide from God instead of being honest with God. Do you pray about your worries? Do you pray about your worries? Elijah and the band can come on ahead. We're going to pray in just a moment. And, uh, and I'm going to have you stand in, in just a moment. But I, I, I want you to do something pretty specific today. I know don't always ask for people to come forward and pray, but I think it's, it's fitting. If you're, if you're facing worry and you've not yet developed a practice of prayer for when you worry, it's easy for you to hear a sermon like this and say, man, the next time I get worried or maybe next week or tomorrow, I'm going to start doing something about this. I don't want you to do that. I want you to start today. And I'm going to give you some very, very simple instructions about how to do that. I want you to be honest with God about what is making you worry. And then I want you to just pray three things. It's on the handout. If you've got a handout, it'll be on the screen. Just these three things. Here's what I want you to pray to God about whatever is making you worried. And there's a lot of things that can make us worry. I understand. Some of you are worried about a conversation you're going to have with your employer because you need a raise. Some of you, the last conversation you had with your spouse made you worry about your marriage. Some of you, your grandchildren told you they're deconstructing your faith and you had to Google that and you're scared. Some of you worried about a medical test. They were supposed to call you back. They never did. So you're waiting by your phone tomorrow morning next to your Cheerios. What makes you worry today? Be honest with God about it and then pray these three very simple things. Father, I trust you. It's locating your confidence. Father, I trust you. And Holy Spirit, you are with me. That's acknowledging his presence. And then remind yourself of this through prayer. Jesus, you are coming back. Would you do that this morning as I begin to pray? Let's all stand. Father.